You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7 p.m. Today's guest of the Political Periscope, Janusz Bugajski, a senior fellow at a Jamestown Foundation in Washington, D.C. Political Periscope Joe Biden had two very significant visits this week to Kiev and to Warsaw. What do you think is the significance of those visits? Well, it's clearly a visit uh, on the first anniversary of Russia's attack on Ukraine. And the signal to, to Kiev was very clear that America stands with Ukraine, that America uh, is not going to give, uh, it's not going to surrender to Russia. It's not going to withhold weapons for Ukraine to defend itself. Uh, and the fact that Biden himself was in Kiev uh, a year after the invasion, uh, whereas the Russians um, had promised they would be in Kiev in a few days, but there's no sign of any Russian leader anywhere near Kiev. So I think it, it was a symbolic gesture to help uh, Ukraine, but also a symbolic gesture vis-a-vis Russia that you have failed. Uh, the second part in Warsaw, I think, was more of a show of uh, two things, show of NATO solidarity. As Biden keeps saying, every square inch of NATO territory, including obviously every square inch of Polish territory, will be defended by NATO, will be defended by the United States. The second part of it, I think, was also to thank Poland as he said at the end, several occasions to thank Poland for the uh, incredible assistance it's given Ukraine. Uh, a lot of it hasn't been reported. I mean, it's not only it's not only military aid, it's not only helping refugees, but it's integrating those refugees into the workforce. Uh, it's mobilizing international diplomatic support for Ukraine. It's continuing to push NATO itself in a kind of weapons that Ukraine should should. Uh, Uh, should receive. Uh, so it's across the board from humanitarian to security support that Poland has displayed. In fact, Poland has taken the leadership role, I would say, in helping Ukraine. So uh, I think there was a signal by Biden and the US administration of uh, thanks from uh, from the administration. Some people say that it was just a symbolic move, just a gesture without any actual real consequences. Should we treat it like this or is it may i say a historic event it's it's a histor it's a historic event it's not a major historic event but it's, it's an important historic event uh, look symbols have consequences uh, why do people have flags why do people have banners and crests and uh, you know symbols are ex extremely important for, for human beings and for societies and for nations the symbolism itself of biden walking around in Kiev sends an incredibly strong message to the Ukrainian people who have been under attack continuously for a year. And I'm talking about ordinary civilians, children, women, older people, um, people that don't serve in the military who simply want to get on with their own lives. The fact that Biden can walk around Kiev Uh, I think to them is, 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 is an important indication that uh, Ukraine has, has survived, hasn't surrendered, and will become, again, a normal country. So, again, and symbols are very important vis-a-vis -vis NATO. Biden has to keep repeating, uh, in case anybody in Russia mistakes uh, some moves by NATO, that NATO will defend its territory and will defend each member. So, 
in, in some symbols are, are very, very important. Also, remember, uh, we don't know all the details of everything that was discussed in terms of military packages, aid packages, uh, diplomatic moves, and so forth. Uh, these, these will come out, you know, this is a war. These things will come out during the course of the following weeks. The commitment of President Biden and uh, I think most of the Democrats and many Republicans also, the commitment to, to aid for Ukraine uh, seems rock solid. But there are some parties, some factions in the US, uh, especially Trumpists, that seem to be rather against. Yeah, it's true. Uh, although I would say the sort of internationalist um, Atlanticist core um, in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party is very solid. Uh, we see this in the Senate in particular. I think the Senate is probably the most important institution um, other than the presidency in the United States. And the Senate has consistently, even throughout the Trump period, has consistently voted for uh, expanding NATO, uh, expanding the military, um, reinforcing the defense budget, and of course, uh, assisting Ukraine. In fact, there are some Republican voices in the Senate that have criticized Biden for not supplying enough assistance to Ukraine. Uh, people like Lindsey Graham um, and, and other uh, sort of long-term uh, internationalist Republicans. There are, as you say, though, factions uh, in both parties that would oppose uh, supplying Ukraine with the kind of weapons that it's received. Um, most importantly, I, as, as you said, Trumpists or the, some of the, the more extreme MAGA people, Make America Great Again people in particularly in the House. Uh, in the Senate, they, they don't really have much of a, a, a say, much of a voice. But there is a fa faction in the House that actually helped uh, McCarthy, the, speak, the Republican Speaker, to actually become the Speaker of the House because their small majority, uh, their small minority made the Democrats into a majority. They are outspoken against assistance to Ukraine. But I think it's, it's done more on a partisan basis rather than a qu question of national security. I think that a lot of these people are novices. They're populists. They don't understand what's at stake here in Ukraine, what's at stake in Poland, what's at stake in Europe. Um, the Democrats, to be fair, on the other side, there are, uh, there's a group of progressives, some of them quite radical, who also would like to cut aid to Ukraine and engage in so-called peace talks with Moscow. And we saw this in the letter that was published a few months ago, uh, which was subsequently retracted. But there are voices within the Democrat Party as well that would go along with that, which is typical. It's sort of the extreme left and the extreme right which are always very close together politically. What seems to me to be one of the biggest threats in the US for the support for Ukraine is Fox News. Um, they literally repeat some of Kremlin's propaganda, especially uh, Tucker Carlson. Why? Uh, why? Because Tucker Carlson, anything that the government does is bad. Uh, this is such uh, incredible polarization that we see evident, not everything in Fox. There are uh, actually Fox reporting uh, on elections and foreign policy is very good. You're talking about these opinion shows. And Tucker Carlson is the worst offender. He has the most sort of pro-Moscow, pro-Russian um, show probably on television. But I think a lot of that is the fact that it's it's supposed to appeal to the MAGA core of Trump's base so that anything that Biden does, anything that the Democrats do is supposedly bad. Um, which gets them into a mess, actually, uh, in, in some cases. But here, I think what they're doing is trying to 
bring focus on all the problems that America has and that they think that Biden is not resolving, um, but is spending money on international questions that shouldn't really concern us. Um, this is a sort of isolationist populist stream that's always existed in American politics. Um, it's usually a minority stream. Trump actually brought it more to the forefront because of his own personal popularity. He brought this populist stream to a wider audience, this isolationist stream. It's died down because he did lose the elections. Uh, and Fox itself, we'll, we'll see actually it's gonna get interesting because now we're entering the presidential election season uh, later this year, next year, people are already announcing their candidacies uh, for the Republican primary. And that's going to get interesting who Fox is going to support, whether there's going to be any more moderate Republicans or whether they, the uh, Trump himself or some of the Trumpites uh, who may actually stand also uh, are going to prevail. But again, I would say it varies. I mean, there are some, you know, people like uh, Hannity and, uh, and Tucker Carlson are very pro Trumpist, but there are other voices in Fox that I think are less so. A lot would depend, of course, on the owners, on on Murdoch, and how far they would want Fox to go in supporting a populist platform. But there are also such people as Mersheimer or even Kissinger at the beginning, of course, of the invasion, because later he changed his mind. But they also called for peace, for not engaging on the side of Ukraine, not helping Ukraine. Yeah, well, Mersheimer has a long, long history of so-called realism, um, which is really supporting the existence of large powers uh, and neglecting the interests of smaller powers, including countries like Poland, of course, and Ukraine and uh, and others that entered NATO. Uh, it's also, I would say, a, um, a very a sort of narrow view of uh, I I Russian history, um, Russian ambitions, in whatever form they are. It was never a question simply of communism. It was the question of imperialism that was the problem. Uh, so people like Mersheimer, I think, are stuck in that old world of great powers and little powers are supposed to orbit around them. It's sort of Cold War thinking in a way. Uh, Kissinger is a slightly different case. I think he, um, I think he has had strong links Uh, with Russia, I mean, business links and others since he's been out of office. Uh, he's always had this, uh, this idea that Russia can be transformed into some sort of cooperative partner of the United States. Um, but I think the nature of the war in Ukraine has probably convinced him that that isn't feasible anymore. Um, but, you know, again, Kissinger isn't a major a player in, in American politics or even in American public opinion or political opinion. Uh, Mersheimer has a certain following amongst the, the so-called realists, uh, which are both leftist and rightist again. Uh, but again, it seems to be increasingly detached from the real world. During the Munich Security Conference, Wang Yi, the foreign minister of China, pointed to the US, accusing it of stealing the benefits of international trade and, well, not explicitly, but rather seemed to regard the US as a hostile nation towards China. Is it true? Is the US hostile towards China? Uh, well, uh, the US, and I think here both parties are in agreement, Uh, view China as the primary adversary of the United States uh, globally, not just in the Far East, but uh, increasingly in other parts of the world. Um, even under Trump, the national security uh, doctrine that was uh, 
that was issued uh, early on the Trump administration identified Ameri uh, two major adversaries for the United States, Russia, which is a declining power, uh, and uh, China, which is a rising power. To what degree it's going to rise in the next few years, we're not sure because of its own economic problems and potential, potential social unrest. Nevertheless, I would, I would say yes, uh, the, the US does view China as a major adversary, not a direct yet um, military competitor, as we see with Russia in Europe. Um, if, however, China were to try to stage an attack on Taiwan, similar to what Russia has done on with Ukraine, that would bring uh, di a direct conflict, I would say, direct military conflict between China and the United States. And the Chinese, unlike the Russians, tend to be a lot more careful, I would say. They plan for the long term. Um, you know, nobody's going to remove the Communist Party or the leadership of the Communist Party, except, you know, the, the Politburo itself. Uh, whereas in Russia, you never know with the, with the brewing power struggles who's going to be next in line. So they have less to fear politically. But also, I would say China does not want to engage in an all-out war with the United States because that would really damage its economy. And it is dependent... Uh, uh, not just on the United States, but also on, on, on European markets uh, for its economic growth, for its trade and so forth. So, yeah, China is a long-term adversary, and there are some in uh, uh, policy advisors who say over the next few years, it's almost inevitable that there will be a military conflict with China somewhere. Um, but uh, all the more reason that we need to make sure that Ukraine defeats Russia, uh, because that will also weaken the Chinese position. Uh, again, we talked about symbols. That was send a very strong message to China that if you attack Taiwan, you're going to suffer the same consequences as Russia is in Ukraine. The Chinese-American struggle for influence also is visible here in Europe, especially in Central Europe. This is probably why Donald Trump decided to support the Free Seas Initiative. But Joe Biden seems a bit more reluctant towards this um, project. Is his administration really less supportive of the Free Seas Initiative or it was just uh, an impression? I don't think I don't think it's less supportive. Uh, I think there is so much going on now with the war in Ukraine and helping uh, Poland and other countries militarily to help build up their defenses against any potential Russian assault in the future. That there hasn't been enough attention to Three Seas Initiative, but you're going to have a huge question over the coming years uh, after the war in Ukraine, after Ukraine liberates its territory, of uh, reconstructing Ukraine, economic reconstruction, and I think. Poland here can position itself as a major hub, a major center uh, for economic re reconstruction. It already has the best economic ties uh, with Ukraine, I mean, in terms of trade, in terms of uh, people, in terms of labor, in terms of energy increasingly. Uh, so Poland can position itself and will position itself, I think, to benefit economically as well from the reconstruction of Ukraine. And this is where I think the Three Seas Initiative can be plugged in. In other words, to create a trading and information and infrastructural um, uh, region in Central Europe from the Baltics all the way down to the Black Sea, which will be not dependent anymore on Russia in terms of energy or trade, which will help to reconstruct those countries that want to be independent and free of Russian imperialism, and at the same time, do not uh, undermine uh, some of the other relationships they have, for example, in NATO or the European Union. 
So maybe some hesitancy among some officials not to push too far at this point um, to see how things work out vis-a-vis Ukraine, vis-a-vis this, the war, the war uh, vis-a-vis Russia. I, I don't think there will be less commitment. I think, if anything, there should be more commitment. But it's also uh, up to the three C countries, particularly Warsaw, but but the other countries to make sure this initiative is viewed in the most positive light possible as a constructive way to prevent future assaults by Russia, to make sure this region uh, grows economically, and uh, to make sure that it's plugged in both with the European Union, but also with NATO, that it's not some sort of substitute, but it's an enhancement of relationships in the region. There is one major factor in reconstruction of Ukraine, which is, of course, money. Can the Free Seas Investment Fund become a sort of new Marshall Plan for Ukraine if Ukraine is included in the Free Seas Initiative? Yes. Um, I mean, look, the Ukraine's going to get assistance from different sources, IMF, World Bank, European Union, I mean, the uh, Bank of uh, Reconstruction Development. Uh, 3C's initiative uh, has to find a way to plug into that. In other words, the money that will be coming in needs to be spent in a very constructive way, in a way that builds infrastructure, rebuilds cities, um, provides jobs, uh, provides opportunities for new Western investment. It's not just a question of giving money, it's a question of actually unlocking the entrepreneurial potential both of, of Ukraine, but also its neighbors. So I, you know, I do see uh, uh, three C's as, as actually a, a bonus, as something that can benefit uh, not only um, the countries that are already within, but also the neighbors such as such as Ukraine. And potentially in the future, don't forget also Belarus. I wouldn't exclude Belarus once uh, Russia starts to, to weaken its grip over its neighbors. The US needs a strong partner in Europe, kind of a proxy for dealing with Europe. For years, uh, Germany tried to be such a country, but right now we see Germany, well, although uh, the Secretary of State uh, Blinken in Munich praised Germany for its help, we can see that this help is more verbal than, uh, than actual. Do you think that Germany will preserve its position uh, in the relations with uh, the US or there can be another player in Europe? Yeah, first of all, I, I wouldn't use the word proxy. A proxy uh, usually has a negative connotation that you're doing something on behalf, behalf of somebody else. Uh, Poland uh, and other countries in Central Europe are not proxies of the United States. They're partners, allies of the United States. Uh, so in this sense, I think Poland is going to strengthen its position, precisely what you're saying. Germany, um, Germany's role has been weakened, I think, not only as a result of the uh, current administration, um, which has been hesitant, has not taken any kind of leadership role, uh, has been pushed into supporting Ukraine militarily, uh, continues to um, talk about negotiations with with Russia, not as bad as Macron in France, but nevertheless, Scholz has also um, talked about potential compromises vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukrainian territory. Uh, in dealing with Russia. Uh, Germany's role, I think, for many years has been weakening. Uh, and I think what's what's this what this war has also unearthed is the high degree of corruption in Germ in German official circles vis-a-vis -vis Russia. You know, it always makes me um uh, you know this hypocrisy of uh, the German government 
continuously claiming that the Balkan countries are are corrupt, um, East Balkan, West Balkan, whereas their elites have been completely corrupted by by Russia uh, in terms of energy, in terms of uh, trade, uh, in terms of political influence. So I think Germany has lost that. Um, how can I put it? That that gravitas, that 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 role that it had in Europe under American protection for so many years. And remember, Germany was only a, a, an ally because it was beaten. It was not a voluntary ally to begin with. This was a, a country that was beaten because it's because it started World War Two and perpetrated all the atrocities in Europe. And thanks to America, Germany lost. Uh, the country was occupied. Then it became an ally, and then it was helped through a Marshall Plan to develop its economy. So. Now Poland, uh, I think, naturally becomes the anchor of transatlantic security for the United States. In fact, my new book, which I'm starting, uh, is going to focus on Poland's role uh, in the region and in its relationship with the United States. And I, I think Poland over the coming years, as a result of the war in Ukraine, as a result of a weakening Germany, as a result of, um, let's say, America's commitment to engagement with Europe, I think Poland is going to come out a much stronger player, uh, I would say even a pivotal strategic anchor for the United States and for NATO in Europe. Very briefly, to finish, when will the war end and what will be the outcome? Uh, well, it's in, nobody, I think, knows exactly when the war will end. Um, I, I, you know, there are various uh, voices saying that by the summer, uh, the, Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian forces will have the capability to regain all of their territory, or at least the Donbass and possibly isolate Crimea to such a degree that Russia is completely weakened militarily in the peninsula, and then and then will be subject to fresh Ukrainian attacks later. I can't give you a deadline, but if you listen to some of the Ukrainian um, intelligence chiefs um, who, who occasionally give interview, uh, they think, uh, they compare it to a football game. They say a football game is 90 minutes. We're about 70 minutes into the game and the score is 1-1. But we're about to mount some major attacks uh, over the coming months in the last 20 minutes. And if you if you sort of iron that out into a timetable, uh, they're talking about the end of summer as being the culmination of um, of this war. So Ukraine will regain all its territories? Ukraine, I think, will regain most of its territories. Uh, again, I don't like to predict that to, to that much of a detail. Um, obviously, Ukraine is committed to regaining all of its territories. Whether they'll regain all of its territories by the summer, we don't know. There's another factor which needs to be borne in mind. Will Ukraine come under pressure at some point? Um, because Russia will be seen to be losing and uh, Ukraine will be pushed into some sort of negotiating format uh, over the future of Crimea. That is another possibility that I wouldn't exclude. And this is why I think countries like Poland and the Baltic states and Romania and others have to uh, keep pushing um, the rest of NATO to acknowledge that this war is not over until Crimea is part of Ukraine again. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was The Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m. 